Hi, I'm Rami. And I'm Chinin, and this is Workplace Hugs, where we talk about interesting things we've read or heard to help all of us expand our life toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy, but without a whole new degree. Rami, what are we talking about this week? It's a book that I read by Ben Horowitz. He is famous for probably a few different reasons. Um, He started a lot of companies, but uh, the first book that he wrote is really well-loved. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. We are not talking about that book. We are talking about the second book that he wrote that I think is much more polarizing, which is What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. I feel like I've heard of this book, but I don't know anything about it. So I'm excited to dig in. Perfect. So I think the book is fine. It's not great. The problem with a book like this And if you read a lot of business books, they come in like two different, well, let's say three different types. The first one is like, here are all the examples from my career. And a book like that can be very, very good or very bad. All books can be very good or very bad. But (laughs) no, really? (laughs) The first one is like, here are a bunch of examples from my career. I'm just going to walk you through my career. Let's just talk about all the things and you'll glean some insights from those. The second is I'm going to do a hybrid of my career plus historical things. And I feel like that's what kind of book this is. And I feel like that's the hardest because Mm. the meshing of the two is always really tricky. The third kind is here's just a bunch of examples from other businesses. And I feel like that one is the most straightforward type of book because you're like, I'm just going to use all these examples. So, like, I can I can make it tell the story that I want to as opposed to this is my career or I'm going to try and mush the two things together. This is the mushing of the two. And I don't know that it works great, but that doesn't matter. I think there's lots of things um, for us to discuss about culture. And I think culture is really interesting, especially now in a post post-pandemic world where a lot of companies are going more digital. And even if it isn't full-time remote, it's at least a hybrid. And I think hybrid is very different than it ever was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So it talks about the principles of how to create culture in an organization. We'll go through all the things, but I'm just going to throw a bunch of the sections and ideas, and then we'll kind of talk through them. And hopefully there's something everyone can kind of take away from this episode. Okay, so let's start with the first thing, which is, I don't know what, okay, so obviously culture is going to be dictated by how people exist within the company, how people work together in the company, and then who it is that works in the company. So Mm -hmm. one of the first things he talks about is the traits that he looks for in new hires. Uh, The four traits are smart, humble, hardworking, and collaborative. And he's like, if you get someone who's all of those things, then they're going to fit into almost any culture, but especially the kind of culture that he wants to build and the kind of culture he wants. Yeah, I can't take issue with these four traits. They seem like good things to look for in a person. Exactly. So let's keep going. 
um, his rules to create a rule that sets a lasting culture are, um, there's four of them. It must be memorable. So if people forget the rule, they forget the culture too. It must raise the question why. Um, your rule should be so shocking that everyone hears it, is compelled to ask, are you serious? Uh, its cultural impact must be straightforward, and then people must encounter the rule almost daily. Okay, so first of all, just like rules about creating rules is interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you can come up with some example or offer some examples here. What comes to mind for me is during our time when we worked together at Target, one of the biggest like shocks in the culture was when we went from a business professional dress code to a dress for your day culture. And I would say that that hits on the the rule about rules that it should be memorable. Like dress for your day is so memorable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I hear it everywhere now post pandemic, but this was like back in, I don't know, when did they do that? 2013 probably. So that's the only rule that I can think of that really sticks out to me. What are some examples that come to mind for you? Hold on, Shannon. Do you know that they changed the dress code again? No. What is it now? You can wear athleisure wear and hats. And I think shorts. Oh, wow. Good for them. I know that um, my girlfriend who still works there, she was saying that they're... I forget what what the term is now for the culture of, like, flex for your day or something. Like, in terms of whether you need to be in the office or not, Mm -hmm. too. They're using, like, the same play on words or whatever. I don't know. Anyways. I I like it. Um... I don't know. I wasn't actually looking at any rules. I think the, I think if you think, so you and I both work to target. I think that fast, fun, friendly, that like surprise and delight. I think those are the kind of things that I think about when it's like, oh, these rules are really straightforward. You must encounter it almost daily. Um, It's cultural impact is straightforward. But was it shocking? Like I can't think of a that cultural was, rule. That's the issue that's that I shocking. That's to the me. issue that I have with this is like I don't think it needs to be shocking. And I think honestly, if you're being shocking to be shocking, then it's stupid. And you'll see if you looked at the reviews of this book, it's a lot of people have issue with that specifically because I think if it's memorable, it's straightforward, and you encounter it daily, then it's a good rule. Yeah, I don't know that it has to be shocking. So, yeah, I, I can't I provide a good example here. Okay, so the next <laughs> um, thing is pe- uh, build trust first. So the more you trust, the less you communicate. Uh, the amount of communication is inversely proportioned to the level of trust. If you trust me completely, you would need little to no explanation for whatever you do is in my best interest. On the other hand, if you don't trust me in the slightest. All the talking, explaining, and reasoning would fall on deaf ears. Shannon, you're giving me eyes. I love it. <laughs> Talk. I had a very strong reaction, but maybe for context, uh, Rami and I are planning like a special treat episode around marriages and work, and so I was thinking about it through that context. The more you trust, the less you communicate. No, <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. For me, communication leads to trust in my marriage and I think in a lot of my business relationships as well. Like, let's communicate, let's have clarity about expectations and whatnot of each other and needs and whatnot. 
So I feel like the order of operations is off here. Or maybe there's a step before. It's like you communicate a lot, then you trust more, then you don't have to communicate as much anymore. Maybe, but not necessarily. I think I agree. That's why my question was, does it really reduce the amount of communication? I think you're right. I think if you can build up trust, it's going to take a lot of communication to build up the trust. And then once you have it, I think it's dependent on what is interesting to the other person or what they care about for where they want over communication versus no communication. Yeah. So like, go ahead. Well, this is giving me an idea for a side hug that I think we should do about how to build trust. I can't remember, I don't think we've done this one before, but I remember reading an interesting piece in a book that said like there's four components of it. I don't think communication was well, I think communication was just like the underlying cornerstone, if you will, above the four principles. So, yeah, this is fascinating that the more you trust, the less you communicate. Disagree disagree not true (laughs) so the example i'll give is i had a boss who trusted me completely and wouldn't like never check in with me never ask me any questions just kind of like let me do things but then when there were things that he cared about it almost like became a micromanage thing Mm. not because he didn't trust me he just wanted to micromanage that specific thing yep so It was almost like when it was something that he really cared about or whatever, it was like, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to get down in the weeds with this. And then on 99% of things, like, great. Yeah. It's interesting to think about it in different relationship dynamics because I was thinking, like, I can remember bosses that I had that maybe didn't communicate with me so much because they trusted me. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it was because I was always communicating with them. You know, like I operated very much in like a no surprises policy and I encouraged my team to operate that with me of like, don't let it be a surprise because if it's a surprise, then we're going to have a lot to communicate on. But if I already know that this bad thing is going to happen, there's going to be a lot less for us to communicate on if and when it comes, comes through. So yeah, trust. Trust. We're going to talk about that one in a different episode. What's the next uh, concept from the book? All right. So the next one, which you just led into with your no surprises policy, is creating a safe space. So um, I don't like the quote that he has for this, but I like the I like it conceptually, which is so. When he was a CEO, his favorite opening line to a group, his employees, to whoever it is, was. I know with great certainty that there are things that are completely broken in our company and I want to know what they are. I like that. I don't like the second part of this. If you don't know what they are, then you're of no use to me in this meeting. (laughs) Burn. (laughs) That's very aggressive. But I'm thinking about a couple of leaders. Uh, One leader in particular stands out to me that that was the first thing that she did when she became my leader. She... She gave us each a sheet of paper and she said, I want you to write down all the problems in these different quadrants. What are the problems in team? What are the problems in process? What are the problems in, I don't even remember the other quadrants, but it was an interesting like leadership strategy in a first move to kind of create open dialogue about what the issues are and what we were going to worry about fixing and what we were going to let go of. Well, and I like the idea that you start there. 
because then and this is kind of what he was saying is like then people will always be comfortable bringing you bad news and it wasn't just tolerated it was encouraged right like because you start that way, I think it continues to keep that flow going. Because the worst thing that can happen in uh, any relationship or any business is that people are nervous to share bad news. Yeah. Because it's just going to get worse. Yep. Okay. Uh, the next one is, it's called uh, Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. So there's a management guru, his name is Peter Drucker. His famous quote is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Ben, the author of the book, disagrees. He thinks a company, an organization needs both culture and strategy, and they don't compete, but they coexist to be effective. So the example it gives in the book is Amazon. The long-term strategy for Amazon was a low-cost structure. So culturally, frugality made perfect sense. So it wasn't like they had the nicest offices. They didn't have anything. I think doors were desks for a lot of people in like early Amazon because it was like, we don't care. We just need whatever is the cheapest because we're a low cost company. Like that is our strategy. So it goes from top to bottom. That wouldn't work for someone like uh, Apple, right? They have a culture built on building the most beautiful, perfectly designed products in the world. So you wouldn't expect to go to an Apple campus and have people using doors as desks. Like that wouldn't make sense. You'd expect all of that to follow through. Um, what I want to dig into is how changing your strategy over time or your motto, like your internal motto over time can have a big impact on how you exist. So we'll use Facebook as example. The original motto was move fast and break things. And if you think, Ooh. right, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, that's provocative. Yeah. Um, what is the word that we used before? Surprising? Shocking? I was just thinking shocking. it is that word. Shocking. It, that one is a shocking value. Good job, Amazon. And it helped propel them because it was like, just keep moving and keep trying to build the next thing and break things. Because if you break things, then we can fix them. So after years of growth and a lot of bugs being pushed out, which made things buggy, they shifted it into move fast and build things. Hmm. So it wasn't break things anymore. And so it wasn't like, it wasn't as aggressive um, that one didn't stay for long. It then became, they just dropped it and made it move fast. No, sorry. First they moved it to move fast with stable infrastructure, which is way less catchy than either of the yeah, other two. <laughs> then it became move fast with the addition of, and please, for the love of God, don't break anything. That's funny. Which is like the I'm opposite of how of, they used to be. Yeah, I'm thinking of a uh, guy that I know who he's a VP or an SVP at Amazon. And yeah, this is like alive and well within him. And if anything, this gives me pause to more be mindful of making sure that the company that you're working for is is like the values aligned with your own because mm -hmm. this is alive and well in him and how he runs his whole life in a way that can be 
detrimental. Frankly, off-putting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and detrimental to, I think, others around him. Um, so being mindful of how the culture will infiltrate your personal life, potentially, too. And then the other thing that, I mean, maybe this takes the conversation in a different direction, but I was thinking, I guess maybe I disagree with the culture eat strategy for breakfast, too, because I think... You need a strong strategy to attract talent. Like if your company doesn't have a strategy that talent believes in, then you're never going to create a culture that wants to support the strategy. I'm thinking of a client right now um, that works for a company that many people would would kill to work for, so to speak. She no longer believes in the strategy of the company. So she's looking to make a move. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like, it doesn't matter how awesome the culture is, how much like people would kill to work there. She doesn't believe in the strategy anymore. It has nothing to do with the culture. And I don't think she's the only person that's ever felt that way and made a move based on that. Well, so let me, let me counterpoint that by saying I've worked in a company that had almost no strategy in all uh-huh. culture. And they had incredible retention because people just loved working there. Yeah. And that goes to the thing of like, what do people say? People quit managers, not companies. Yeah. So maybe in that sense, yeah. But I'm more with the author of this book to say, I think it is a both and. Like, it is a both and. I don't think everybody is going to love working for a company that has great culture and no strategy. And I don't think... I think the flip side is also true. People wouldn't love to work for a company that has a great strategy and shit culture. (laughs) For sure. You need both. For sure. But I think if one is going to attract people, I think it's culture over strategy. Yeah, you're probably right. So that's where I like, I, I don't know that I agree, but I don't know that I disagree that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think it's a good quote thing to think about. Yeah. Okay. I like this next part a lot. This might be my favorite part of the entire book. So that's not high praise. It just, I like this part more than anything else. Okay. So he said, great questions lead to great answers. So if your question is, why am I so fat? Then you're going to be saying to yourself, because I'm stupid and have no willpower because it's a bad question. If you ask bad questions, you're going to get bad answers. If you ask great questions, you're going to get great answers. So if the question you ask yourself is, how can I use my vast resources to get in the best shape I can ever be? Your brain will start saying, I'll eat healthy. I'll work out like a pro athlete and I'll live to be 120. Mm -hmm. So if you can ask great questions of yourself, of your employees, of your organization, then you will get great answers. And so it's, I think, a nice pivot to think about, well, if you're not getting the answers or the results that you want, maybe you're asking the wrong questions. Yes. And I've probably said this many times before on the podcast, but I think a question that starts with why is a dead giveaway for a bad question sometimes, particularly when we're trying to make change, because why by its very nature puts us in the past. It puts us in defense mode of something. Typically, the only time that I will ask why questions to a client is when they've clarified a future vision and it's time to defend that. (laughs) I don't want it to be about trying to defend 
uh, their current circumstances. I don't ask why about current circumstances. I ask how and what questions on a client's current circumstances. How and what? <clears throat> I like that. Um, Shannon, can you think of a bad question that you've asked yourself that you could rephrase? I mean, I feel like this is the game that I play with myself every day. It's like looking for the why questions in my life and shifting them into a how or what. So I don't know. You go first and I'll think a little bit here. My question, I, I would like to watch more movies. So the question I asked myself is, well, the f- bad question is like, why don't I watch more movies? That's a bad question. The good question is, how do I make time to watch more movies? Yeah. I think like, also always phrasing it as the positive thing. Like, what is the thing you want to create versus the the thing you don't want to be doing anymore? Exactly. So now I'm just going to watch movies and ride my bike or something. I have no idea. Yeah. So maybe for me, like, if I'm really vulnerable, um, presence comes up a lot for me with my kid. I don't know if it's by nature of my profession, but I uh, I have no problems being present with clients, but it's like by the end of the day, I have, I do have challenges being present with my kids sometimes. And so instead of asking myself, well, why can't I just be more present with Talia? It's shifting to how might I, how might I be more present with Talia? What might I try? I like that. You know, like, like it's that. that shift. I like that Shannon. Okay. And then let's go into the last one and then we'll kind of wrap things up here is um, make ethics explicit. Do the right things means little. So does it mean do the right thing only when someone's watching? What if the right thing conflicts with other equally right and important things? Don't leave ethical principles unsaid. Paint a clear picture of ethics you expect out of your people. And then he says um, to use an object lesson to cement this because what you say means far less than what you do. And if you want a model lesson, do something dramatic. So if it's like, hey, we don't accept gifts from our partners. So if a gift does show up, you walking through the office saying, hey, we don't accept gifts. We're going to mail this thing back to them. And showing everybody like, hey, I don't do that. And then also not later showing up at a concert with your vendors (laughs) and continuing to validate that, I think, is how you make ethics explicit is like saying and doing the same things, but showing people that you're doing those things and that you expect that out of everybody, I think is how you show that. Yeah, I would agree. This feels like another, uh, a beautiful common sense. Like the first one that we started with of the four qualities to look for. Exactly. And that's where I think like part of the book is, Oh, this is common sense. And yes, you pointed it out. And then some of it is like, okay, I don't know how much I believe this. And then some of it is like, okay, I can get behind this. Okay, so that's kind of the book. Um, Hopefully something in there was interesting and you take something away. I'm sure that they will. (laughs) Tactically, there's like a cultural checklist that you want to kind of go through. So I'm just going to run through those quickly and then um, wrap it up with one quick quote. And then we'll kind of go from there. So the cultural checklist is... Um, one to work on cultural design and then cultural orientation because designing is great, but you need to walk people through it and explain it to them when they start. Uh, his third one is shocking rules, which again, I don't know that I agree with, but 
if you can figure something out, like Facebook's move fast and break things, then great. Like that's cool. And that's fun. And it's shocking. More power to you. Mm. Incorporate outside leadership, use object lessons, make ethics explicit, give cultural tenants deep meaning, walk the walk, and make decisions that demonstrate priorities. I like it. This is thought provoking. I'm thinking about a couple of clients right now that are doing some DEI work and where they might be running into some of these pieces a little bit (laughs) as they work to create culture shift in their organizations. But that could be a wholly different topic entirely. Well, and that's where I say, like, if you're looking to make a cultural shift in your organization, you have some power to do that. I think this book is good and that it gives you like lots of thought starters. I don't know that it's like, I don't know that you're going to get a black and white manual from anyone on how to change culture, but I think this can get you thinking in the right ways to start to ask those questions of yourself, your organization and others. Yeah. I like it. So we'll end with the quote that gets us to the title of the book, which is culturally what you believe means nothing. What you do is who you are. Mm, That's got some zip to it. That's right. It's the mustard at the end of the hot dog. Delicious. Uh, Shannon, (laughs) we would love for everyone to connect with us on uh, Instagram and on LinkedIn. Maybe tell us, do you know of any companies that have shocking cultural rules? I'd like to hear that. Yeah, I would like to hear that too. If you think your company has like a, a shocking ruler value, share it with us. I'd love it. And with that, I've been Rami. And I've been Shannon. And this has been Workplace Hugs. 